As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I don't think I've ever met any victim that meets and fits that criteria for the perfect passive victim. But to be not viewed in a negative way in a courtroom, you have to actually play that role and how deeply damaging that is for us as individuals.
Regular listeners to Australian True Crime will know that we've featured the work of journalist Nina Fennell several times this year and the Let Her Speak and Let Us Speak campaigns. Nina's brought a number of issues to our attention. We started on a high note with the repeal of laws in Tasmania and the Northern Territory that had prevented victims of sexual assault from telling their own stories under their own names. Tasmanian Janelle O'Connor joined us to tell her story for the first time. And here we are, how many years later? 26. And you're allowed to tell us your story? Yeah. With and your own name attached and your own face attached? Yeah. How do you feel? Relieved and um, extremely empowered by the Let Her Speak campaign. Unfortunately, in August... Nina and fellow journalist Sherelle Moody discovered that Victoria had passed problematic legislation earlier in 2020. So on February 7 this year, very quietly when no one was really paying much attention, partly because of bushfires and then COVID, the laws in Victoria have did change and they've changed in such a way that it's now a crime for sexual assault survivors to speak to the media under their real name in cases where there is a conviction in place against the offender and also in cases where the matter is still before the courts. So for sexual assault survivors who are in that position, including those who might have gotten a conviction against their offender five years ago, 20 years ago, you know, at any point in time, they are now all prohibited from being identified in the media. And the only way around this is if they go back to court and they get a court order that says they're allowed to be identified. And that includes, you know, a whole lot of clergy abuse victims, those who have come out of Ballarat, some of whom have been doing public advocacy work for decades and who are now all of a sudden being told, hold on, you're not allowed to be named, you'll have to go back to court if you want to continue to do that advocacy work. We heard from one survivor who had been breaking the law on a daily basis for months without knowing it. We couldn't name her at the time, but it was, of course, Darcy Ehrlich, who has since won a court order enabling her to speak publicly again. Here's what she had to say at the time. Yeah, just another, you know, hurdle in this long journey. Like, we, we haven't had enough. We just thought, throw another one at us. Okay, so we sp- Dan Andrews called us last night, and so that was very reassuring. We felt, you know, that this was, was a stuff-up. Uh, Jill Hennessy did call us this morning as well and reassure us that the laws will be changed, not quick enough for us because uh, September 21st is our big decision, and we can't actually speak about that on September 21st. So we have begun the process of applying to lift that gag so that that will happen before these laws are changed. But the fact that we even have to do that is it's just excruciating. And the fact that this was something that was put into place for survivors to have to overcome this hurdle, even if it was a mistake, I had so many survivors call me yesterday and just say the fact that this has been done, that it wasn't carefully considered of exactly how this was going to affect people that have so little choice already. I mean, that should have never have happened. I did a couple of articles yesterday and the fact that, you know, I read the articles and I'm anonymous, I felt like crying. I mean, I felt like I had been told that the law was telling me that there was something to be ashamed about what we were doing. And I know that that was not the intention, but that was how it felt. Unbelievably, in their attempt to rectify their mistake, the Victorian government came up with another disastrous proposed law in October. But what's happening now is they're going to introduce new legislation. They're debating it in Parliament this week. And what that new legislation will do is effectively it will return 
agency, generally speaking, to adult sexual assault survivors to be able to decide if and when they tell their story. But what they're tacking on to the end of it, which has caught everybody off guard, is some additional legislation. And what that additional legislation will do is criminalise anyone from naming a deceased sexual assault victim. So think people like Jill Ma or Eurydice Dixon or Aya Masawa or any number of individuals who have taken their own lives post-sexual assault, particularly in cases of sexual abuse and clergy. And those families, along with families of people like Jill Ma and, and Aya Masawa and so on, if they want to continue to speak out about their deceased loved one, they will now need to go back to court and fight for a court order to do that and actually prove that their case is in the public interest. So they're going to have to pass a threshold test, and that is a public interest test. They'll also need to demonstrate what the victim's wishes were if known, if they wanted, if it was known whether that victim wanted to be identified in public prior to their death. So it's, it's pretty extraordinary that they would, they would do this, and they haven't actually consulted with those grieving families before adding this on. So I'm <laughs> dumbfounded, to be honest, that they could screw up so substantially the first time round in implementing a gag on living sexual assault survivors. And now they're going to fix the gag on living sexual assault survivors, but replace it with a different gag, which is on the families of deceased sexual assault victims. So if, for example, Tom Ma wanted to talk about sentencing issues in relation to Adrian Bailey being out on parole when he attacked Jill Ma, Tom's wife, he would not be able to name Jill in talking about that because he, he wouldn't have had her express permission before her death to do that because she obviously had no way of knowing that she would ever be a victim of sexual assault and be murdered. That's correct, but he also wouldn't be able to name himself either because if he were to name himself as the husband of a now deceased sexual assault victim, he would indirectly be identifying her so he could face four months jail or fines of thousands of dollars were he to identify himself. And I think it's important to clarify that this doesn't only apply to publications and media moving forward. Any news article which is still accessible online which names Jill Ma or Eurydice and others would need to be pulled down and it also applies to social media and they've explicitly written that into the legislation so that means that the social media accounts of relatives and family members who who have talked about their loved ones or things like memorial pages wikipedia pages if there have been gofundme set up to help grieving families with funeral costs all of that will be in breach of the law and need to come down or the people responsible for writing that material or producing and publishing that content could face up to four months jail or fines. That legislation appears to have been abandoned, but you can bet Nina Fennell will be keeping an eye on proposed amendments moving forward. Over the Christmas period, we'll be bringing you the work of other creators of true crime podcasts. There are some very good shows that we're excited to bring to your attention, including our very own Emily Webb's new podcast, Crime Fiction Fridays, in which she talks to crime fiction authors and previews their latest books. Hopefully you'll have time to take a break after this bizarre year, read some books and discover some new podcasts. We'll be back with all new Australian true crime episodes in 2021, but it seemed fitting to close out the year with our friend Nina Fennell, 
and another amazing woman whose story Nina brought to us after they fought together to gain a court order so it could be told. It's another example of how important it is for survivors of sexual abuse to be able to tell their stories because this is a story about the added barriers experienced by people who face intersectionality. That is to say their social and political disadvantages combine to create increased discrimination in the legal system. Today's guest is Nicole Lee, who is a disability advocate. Nicole uses a wheelchair and she's also a family violence and rape survivor. In this episode, with the help of Nina Fennell, she'll talk about aspects of the sexual assault she was subjected to by her carer, who was also her husband, that she's never spoken about before. I should let you know as well that if you feel as though there's a cat in the room with you, it's probably Nicole's. Even the concept of intersectionality has always been controversial to people who aren't in it, I reckon, you know? Yeah, yes, yeah. if it's not something that you've lived with or you've been sort of surrounded with, with your, you know, your friends or the, or the bubble or whatever you live in, then, yeah, I guess it's kind of all new information and that information can be a bit, you know, sometimes scary or feel a bit threatening sometimes. Yeah, I think it can feel a bit threatening. The idea that things can be compounded, that issues can kind of stack up on top of each other so that the person can be more vulnerable, is that fair to say? Yeah, I I tend to sort of steer clear of the language around vulnerability, but more sort of, especially with that sort of intersectionality lens, it's sort of like thinking of it as, 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 as if it's layering. So you start off with, you know, with gender and then you start bringing in disability, you know, culturally, linguistically diverse people, First Nations, you know, gender identity, sexuality, and, and you start and the more things that you sort of that intersect with you and, and who you are, um, th- those barriers start to then increase and there's more of them that you have to navigate. Barriers is a better word, yeah. Yeah, barriers is a better word. I think um, so. I, I, I've written a piece recently around sort of that language of vulnerability and, it's, and it sort of shifts the focus on 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 where the responsibility sits for violence and and neglect and abuse and and if you're posing the person as vulnerable it's kind of almost as if it's expected and you're kind of missing the role of the one who chose to you know take advantage of somebody or abuse their position of power over someone and and it just it it, it shifts and it's almost in that kind of victim blaming sort of whilst it's not meant that way it starts to then lead down that way does that make sense? I guess. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not explaining it very well. Yeah, it does. No, you d- you are because the, the exact situation I was thinking of when I used the word vulnerable is actually about you being continually put back in the care of your abuser by, like, say, for example, the legal system, you know. So yeah. I was actually thinking about, yes, that, that system making you vulnerable. I wasn't thinking about yes. it being your, your responsibility. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. The systems put people in vulnerable situations and they make, you know, and they create these these vulnerable environments, you know, that they expect us to exist in and live in and keep putting us back in. But, you know, that vulnerability doesn't sit with the person because you know, we don't control the system. <laughs> but the way you talk about it is like a better way of looking at it. It's like that creates a barrier to your safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I like to sort of then, you know, sort of pose it, you know, especially in the context of care, is, 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 is they're vulnerable to abusing their position of power. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and the system is kind of almost it's almost sort of as if and and then the system is in you you um has so many failings and flaws and it's sort of you know by putting people back into those positions it's highlighting just how vulnerable the system is to failing yeah so it kind of just shifts that 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 language that you know um so you could say disability policy um you know creates vulnerable situations or puts people in vulnerable positions rather than yeah because it tends to get then used on you know sort of centered on the person rather than all the things that actually you know, are out of that person's control and, and and that we don't have a choice in half the time and and you do um you do exist in these relationships because you've got no other choice you need to you need to live and you know if that's your only um you know the the abuser the person that's abusing you is your only it's the only thing that's that's keeping you alive on a day-to-day basis you don't really have much choice especially if um you know options aren't being made available to you it's one of those things people often ask me, why are you interested in true crime? One of my great interests is systemic failure. So often when we sort of backtrack through a crime, a criminal event, what we find is some kind of systemic failure. Someone's been let down, one or multiple people have been let down by one or multiple systems in our culture, the education system, the healthcare system, the foster system, family court system. And so what you're talking about there is exactly the kind of thing that I always like to highlight that a lot, a a large portion of the community won't know about, you know, but it's really crucial to all of us. And and when you start looking at the criminal justice system and you start looking at the role that courts play in um, you know violent offences, and if the person, and then and then how disability then gets placed in all of those situations, and how it either positively or negatively affects um, you know how you're viewed or how you're taken seriously, um, and what what all the outcomes are. Like half of the time, you know, we're not seen as um, credible witnesses when it comes to courtrooms. You know, so people mm. with disability. Um, you know, we're not believed even if you go to the police half the time. Then they're all barriers. Uh, I know one of the things I, I was disclosing to people, and nobody was taking any action. And and so then you start you start distrusting all of the systems. And then the more that I know now, post all of that, that um, you know, victims' testimonies and things that you know are thrown out based on that 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 understanding of, of disabled people not being competent. And the the misunderstanding of what a disability means. So if a person can't speak for themselves, what does that mean about their cognitive ability Mm. and what does it mean about their believability? And so many victims Mm. are are disbelieved because they can't actually speak for themselves. Yeah, and and the courts have a very very simplistic sort of view and and understanding of all that sort of you know that cognitive ability um, and and their understanding versus like our understanding of it, which is you know much more complex and 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 they have a very different sort of view and opinion on that and and then how that plays out in in courtrooms and and in and in these cases and stuff and and like my own, it's you know it's either used to do, um, you know used it was used to um, almost shift the blame from what he did into you know but you know it's that kind of language of care or burnout and that it was such a hard job to look after a disabled person but then you know sort of positioned in you know that you shouldn't do that to a disabled person and and because he had a disability as well then it you know, had this kind of like double whammy well or how are you coping in, in in jail as a disabled man and you know and and how is this going to affect you and your disability and it's sort of it's just it just morphed and moved all over the place and it certainly didn't get sort of all overly reflected 
into my direction in the way that it should have. So when you said earlier in our conversation that you, you're with this person because you rely on them to keep you alive, at one point were you with this person because you loved him? What was the beginning of your relationship? Yeah, well, so the beginning of our relationship, we met through disability sports and and it was really, it was, it was you know, the, the start, so I guess so like for the first year, and, and these are the things that I can sort of pinpoint now, but, you know, when we met, the, the relationship moved very quickly and it did move from that, you know, just purely dating to within a few weeks he'd moved into my home and then a couple of months later we decided that we'd get pregnant and have a baby. So it was that very fast, rapid-moving, living out of each other's pockets sort of whirlwind romance and, um, you know, and then about a year after my youngest was born at the end of knowing each other for 12 months. So it was very, very quick, incredibly quick. And then unfortunately, you know, the offending started not long after he was born. So again, that's not long after you got together, really. We're still, we're still talking a pretty short window. Yeah. So that was, um, you know, what about a year later after we'd been together for a bit over a year that, um, you know, the, the, the sexual offending started. So without any disability involved, this is a pretty classic case in a lot of ways, isn't it? Does it look that way from your perspective? Were there those other sort of telltale signs of controlling in other ways and of mm. separating you, sort of isolating you from friends and family and all those sorts of things? Yeah, 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 no, there was, absolutely. Um, so things like, um, you know, when he moved in, this is you know, quite a long time ago, Not ever, and I didn't even own a computer back then. I didn't have home internet or anything like that. So when he moved in, he had a computer. He was quite you know, reasonably savvy with all that sort of stuff. And I used to go down to the post office to pay my bills. So he moved in, bought in a computer, got some internet connected to the house and started to take over control of paying all of the bills. So, you know, doing them online, doing it via BPAY. And so I'd slowly gotten you know, cut off from that form of independence of, you know, being quite capable of managing my own budget and paying my own bills and bits and pieces to it all moved to this online world. So throughout, you know, the, the time that I was with him for the 10 years, I really didn't touch the computer. I um, still didn't know how to use one. Um, he took control of all of that and, and net banking and everything. So, um, you know, by, by 10 years later, and, you know, we're talking 2014, and, and the world has shifted quite a bit. I had no idea how to do any of that stuff. Um, so I was reliant on him for you know, to navigate all of that and everything had been taken online. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the person that used to go down to the post office and now all of a sudden I, I didn't think that I was capable of doing that. And it was always positioned in the context of I wasn't really, I wasn't very smart and I wasn't clever enough to understand, you know, this technology. So I need to do it for you. And and then that just moved into a whole heap of slurs around, um, you know, my intellectual capacity and, and some really, that really toxic language saying that you're stupid, that within the disability community is, is a really horrible slur. So that shifted into, you know, my name over the years and the relationship became Stupid Woman. It's a slow progression to all of those things. So you don't just, it's not like, you know, everything was great and then all of a sudden one day it just all of a boomed out of nowhere. It just slowly, slowly creeps in, creeps in and, and just gets a little bit worse, a little bit worse and a little bit worse until all of a sudden, you know, by the end of that 10 years and, and he'd been removed and all of these, this stuff had happened and gone through courts and I reflect back now and I just wonder at what point did he go from we were in this relationship and this whirlwind romance to 
hating me, like absolutely viciously hating me when I look back over it all. And and I don't know when that shifted because it's so gradual. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I guess his personality probably didn't, don't you think? I mean, I guess he was always that person um, in a weird way. Like it was always acting out the same pattern or the same narrative. It's just that the, the, your place in the cycle changed, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, on the conversations I have with other survivors now, you know, sort of on the, on the other side of this, in this advocacy space and, and chatting with other survivors and, and the things that they do, it is like a playbook. And, and it's, it's almost, and it's almost as like, do they, is there a book that they're reading? Because they all do such similar things. And, and, and I think, and university's given me that language to kind of pin to this is around, you know, right mills and private trouble public issue is that how can so many people do such intimate, isolated things and all do it the same way? And that's where you start looking to, okay, what is the societal context that all of these men exist within? And that's the stuff I find really fascinating because how else can they all do just the same things? It's mind-boggling. I know it is, isn't it? It's reminding me of that documentary on Netflix at the moment. Have you watched it? American Murder. I don't know. It might be too too triggering, but no, uh, yeah, no, I haven't watched that one. Right. Yet. Well, Chris Watts was a, an American, you know, husband, father, seemed to the neighbors and the friends and everybody like he was a perfect guy, but very similar kind of stuff out of the playbook. Yep. Went through these cycles with his wife, and the first one happened literally the week after they got married, Gee. where he just suddenly started ignoring her and because mm-hmm. he had a bee in his bonnet about something and it's yeah and and I'd honestly want to think and, and and I think this is by just my way of coping with it that I honestly want to be able to believe that it's not a conscious choice <laughs> but I, I think that's a little naive of me but you know it's sort of to think that somebody deliberately employed these tactics is is kind of hard to bear some days. So how did you begin your journey for want of a better word out of this relationship? Well for me it's not it's not that a sort of well, I, I guess I did, I did begin that journey and it's not as the traditional sort of um, idea that you think of that one day, you know, somebody just sort of had enough or they got up one day and, and decided that's it, I'm done, I'm leaving. Um, I had gotten so broken down in that relationship and, and over that 10 years that I didn't think that there was any way out of it. So it had escalated and boiled to the point where, you know, I took an overdose and my oldest son found me on the floor and called an ambulance to come and get me because his father, his stepfather wouldn't get up and get out of bed. And, you know, so in that emergency department after the ambulance came and he still refused to speak to the ambulance officers, um, the emergency department afterwards, you know, asked me, you know, why had I done that? And I said, well, because my husband's raped me four times this week. I don't want to live anymore. And and they're, and they're quite shocked by that. And um, but their response was, "Well, would you like to go to a refuge?" And and knowing that my children were here, I you know my mental health is an absolute mess. I'm a disabled woman, and I'm thinking I can't go to a refuge. I'll probably never see my children again, and I can't leave them in that home. So they called him to come and pick me up, and they sent me back home to him. Um, it was somewhere in that emergency department. Somebody called child protection. Somebody alerted them and that's where for us here everything changed and I can tell you right now the thought of child protection coming around when I realised that that was happening and there was nothing I could do about it was absolutely terrifying. 
but speaking with them that first when they first came to the house and they put us in the room together and they just up front and bluntly said to him so Nicole presented the emergency department saying that you raped her four times this week what have you got to say to that and he's like yes yeah, so so what I did that all men do this oh my god did he and I, I was shocked I was shocked he did yes he, he just owned up and and confessed to it as if like well so what we all do this men, men have got needs and oh. and being just shocked that he was so upfront and honest about it and thinking to myself I know this is a crime I'd been telling him over the years that it was a crime and and just thinking, oh, my God, I, I, there's nothing I can do. I can't stop what's going to happen. And it's just sort of all progressed from there. The police became involved eventually um, and put an intervention order on him and removed him from the house. And But at what point, even on that night, did you realise that you weren't going to lose the kids? Because he must have had you, I know that from what you've already said, that he had you feeling so oh. low that you must have felt almost guilty yourself. Mm. Um. It, that took a while because they didn't remove him that day. They went and they did their investigation. It was probably about a month later that police stepped in and removed him. So in this time I'm still I'm still here existing with this and things are really escalating by this point. Um, and when I think back to it, it was actually really actually rather freaking dangerous when I think back that, you know, nobody took yeah. him there and then. And, and um, I think I'm, you know, incredibly, incredibly lucky. But, um, you know, and eventually, um, yeah, the police did intervene and, and he was called into the police station and questioned and, and, and an intervention order was put on him. And, even, and, even, and, and, and this is the thing, not some of us, um, I know usually, you know, for some of us we've lost our independent decision-making capacity and in that 10 years I lost my agency as a woman to be able to make choices for myself. So... Even in this moment and in the, um, in a police station and I'm still thinking, what do I need to do that's going to keep this man calm? And all of my decisions, and I can look yeah. back now and I can see every single decision I made was one that I thought he'd want me to make and one I thought was going to keep us safe. So when the police stepped in and just said, well, you actually can't keep yourself safe right now, we're really, really worried and we need to do this because this this man will offend again. He's even said he will offend again and we can't let him back into that home and I'm begging them not to do this. And 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 people, you know, look at, you know, well, we shouldn't take agency away from women but you know what, I, I pose it in this position that they didn't actually take the choice to leave away from me. They took it away from him and they took my agency away from him and, you know, sort of threw me and it back home with the children. But then services then started to intervene, services then started to come into the house and, and work with myself and the kids so that I could start to um, refine my agency again and be able to make decisions and, and be able to protect myself again. And I honestly wouldn't, I don't think I would have ever been able to leave if they didn't do that. I probably would have died if the police hadn't have stepped in. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you needed to be given the confidence to believe that you could that you could take care of yourself, right? Because he'd convinced mm. you that you didn't know how to function in the world. Yeah, yeah, I just honestly didn't know how to function in the world. And and over that ten mm. years, the other thing that happened is that I developed a, a anorexia quite severely, especially towards the end, and I was incredibly, incredibly unwell. And I relied on him for getting the kids to school and and I'd become also you know emotionally um he was there for my mental health and my physical health as well so I, I needed somebody 
to also help me remain on my own in the home. I couldn't do it on my own with the children at that point. Um, you know, I didn't have any much in the way of, of, of support or workers coming in because, you know, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't allowed to. Um, so one of the big, big shifting turning points for me after they removed him and, you know, for eight weeks I didn't know what to do because they removed my carer and at that point nobody asked, actually, what are your physical needs right now? What do we need to do? What do we need to put in place? Nobody asked that. So the kids and I were thrown at the home on our own. And for that, you know, for eight weeks, we struggled. We really, really struggled. I couldn't get my back door open and feed my dogs. I couldn't get the kids to school. I couldn't, you know, get the vacuum cleaner around the house. My woman in a wheelchair. I couldn't have a shower was the, you know, the other thing. I couldn't shower on my own because I wasn't, you know, at that point um, in a state to be able to do that. And it was eventually I went to my child protection worker and just said to her, I'm going to have to go into that courtroom and have that intervention order lifted because we are not surviving and I don't know what else to do and I don't have anybody else. And that would have been everything he's been saying, right? Yeah. Well, he, well he, I'd been isolated from my mum and dad, so they weren't really able to and I wasn't in a position to have that relationship with them. Um, you know, and I didn't have any friends or anything that I could call on because mm. I'd been distanced from all of those. You know, being able to ask somebody for a favour was, wasn't was anything that, you know, I didn't have that available to me. So it was literally just myself and and and, and two young and two children, you know, 16 and 9, you know, and no services in place. So it wasn't until I sort of said to Child Protection, I need help, that they, you know, they went to the, you know, the, I think they went upstairs actually, they had disability services in their building at DHHS, you know, Department of Health and Human Services, and they went up there and just said, we've got this woman, we don't know what to do. Have you got any ideas? And that's when they said, yeah, we've got this brokerage funding, what does she need? We'll get a, we'll get a support worker in there today. So it was that bringing in support workers into the home where I was actually able to realise that, okay, well, if I'm supported to be here on my own, I can actually do this. And there are the resources available for me to actually have workers come in and I don't need to rely on this man who's abusing me anymore for my, you know, the day-to-day kind of care needs. And and that's that's sort of, you know, the missing part for disabled people is we can't just get up and leave. We actually need access to someone to help us get up and leave. So that's something that I've said you know, in different, different places and forums is that you can make all the refuges accessible as you want. Um, but if they don't have access to support workers, then how are they getting to the refuge and how are they staying in there? And that was sort of how I was in my home was, well, okay, you've removed him and we're physically safe, but how am I actually going to stay here independently without support? And that's when things shifted for me and I was able to see the difference between need and want. So I needed him to survive, but I didn't want him. And that was a massive shift in my thinking. Yeah, it's not just about ramps. Yeah, it's not just about, it's more than just a ramp. Yes, exactly. Well, I was going to ask you, actually, if you think that, again, intersectionality plays a part in this, because I feel like abusers are constantly trying to convince their partners that you'll never survive without me. You will never survive without me. And so in your situation, there is this extra element of you literally can't shower without me, mate. You can't open the back door without me. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So it's 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 literally, you know, and, and I try to say to people that, you know, for women with disabilities, you know, I wasn't just emotionally, you know, um, made reliant on that, you know, you're, um, you'll never survive without me. I actually physically couldn't survive without somebody coming into the house and helping me. Um, but that's that thing. So you get cut off from all those support networks, so which then creates that barrier for, for somebody with a disability to be able to leave. And then, you know, so you're disconnected from 
the information around, you know, what you're entitled to or what your rights are um, with support needs or care needs. So, like, you only know what you know and if you haven't been allowed to know what you're allowed to ask for from the system or, you know, like with the NDIS, then you don't even know that you can access supports to not have to rely on this person. So it's just this this combination of they create the barriers and then and then you get denied knowing what your rights are as well. Um, and we're expecting people that have been denied knowledge of their rights and have been completely and utterly broken down and disempowered to all of a sudden get up one day and make an entirely empowered decision and leave. And we wonder why we can't do it. And that's where the, that's where the system fails. So what happens next? You get your support systems in place. You start to think, actually, I, maybe I can do this, and you start to get some confidence back. Meanwhile, what's happening legally with your partner, with your husband? Yeah, so during all of this time, I, I held off for quite a long time making a statement against him. All of those fears of the system, you know, unfortunately I have intersected with the system in the past, um, you know, just as, as somebody with a mental health condition, you know, police were always called as a, as a sort of almost like a punishment. Um, you know, I was then taken off to hospital and put on involuntary treatment orders, so a little standoffish. I understood just how hard that was going to be and I held off for a very, very long time. And I, I remember saying to the police and making a deal with them, I said, okay, well, maybe if he's, if you're all telling him that this is a crime, maybe then he will go and get help and I'll give him this one one last chance. Um, and I did that, you know, and because that's what we do. We give them chances. And, and it was the day he called me to say that he told them to stick their men's behaviour change program, breaching the intervention order whilst doing this as well. He'd stick their program and I could stick it and we could all go and jump, and, you know, and, you know, some lovely language in there. So, okay, all right, he's refusing to get help and I stuck to my deal with the police and, and I called and I called my contact person and just said that I need to come in and make the statement. And she got me in that afternoon, which was very, very smart of her. <laughs> yeah, I know, because we go back on it, don't we? Yes, I would. We go, yeah, give us a few days and we go, oh, God, maybe you'll oh, he get apologized. help. It would, that cycle would have started, so he's had this outburst and if and if she had have waited even to the next day, he would have gotten in with an apology and yeah. I would have gone, okay, cool, cool, I'll give you one more chance, one more chance. Mm-hmm. But she didn't. She got me that afternoon and I made the statement and and I stuck to it and I never never took it back. Well, um, even now, I mean, earlier in this conversation when you were saying, I just don't know when he started hating me, I mean, even that, that's very emotional language. Mm. You're still sort of talking about him hating you. It feels like you'd still rather th- he stopped hating you, you know, like mm. can he get help so that he doesn't hate me? It's painful. It's so painful mm. to think that somebody hates you. Yeah, of course it is. It's because you don't deserve it. How could that happen? What you know? Yeah. What what did I? Yeah. What did I do that that, that yeah. warranted? You know, just this absolute hatred. You know, we've we've got a child together. We've got married. You know, we're you know we're building a life together. I'm thinking that we're going to live together until we're old and and on the back porch, you know, slurping a peach. <laughs> And yeah, right. You could not do this to somebody that you loved. You just couldn't. And, and like, I, I just have to, like, I have to hold on to that. Yeah, I, look, I don't think there's a woman alive, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, who doesn't understand that feeling of I'd rather he snap out of it and go back to the guy I met and make me feel 
not so worthless and hateable than have to go through yeah. the whole court process. Yeah. I don't want revenge. I just don't want to feel like shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But as you know, as as that time goes on, and you, see, you know that that all starts to shift, and and there's just all this frustration and and all the questions around why. But, yeah. Um, I know there was quite. It took a while for me to for all of that stuff to start land and sink in. Um, and and one of the things I, I guess and something that came to me through through university, and I think there's a fair amount of. Uh, sort of research and stuff there, um, and I'd love to see some research done on this. Actually, is around you know women's response to stress and our fight and flight response is that we actually release oxytocin, which makes us tend and befriend. So if you look at a violent relationship, and and this this was I guess one of my aha moments, which is that part where um, I couldn't I could never quite put my finger on why it was I thought that I loved him or why I thought I had this emotion there that didn't make sense considering I still hate I like I hated him whilst with him and 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 I and I wanted it all to stop and I wanted him gone and and but what what was this weird attachment that I can't name and I honestly think that there is a fair level amount of chemical bonding fascinating that you know tend and befriend if you've been isolated from everyone you've got nobody around you you've got nobody to sort of go to for help so tending and befriending is that you start you tend to your children and you you align yourself with, with the people around you to help you keep yourself and your children safe and that's that's just an evolutionary um you know thing that women that apparently women do and it just made sense to me because yeah um i'm keeping the kids safe from this this you know violent angry person and he's you know he's doing all these things to me so he's enacted that response in myself but then that nice part of them comes out a few days later the apology so you know that cycle of abuse you know explode and then apologize and they're sorry so i was befriending that nice guy that came out in a few days time and then i'm you know constantly trying to do everything to keep that nice guy there and so i i bef- and and to stop yeah, you know absolutely. to keep us safe and and that was that attachment i just couldn't put my finger on it wasn't until there was absolutely li- zero contact for a good couple of weeks that there was no subliminal messages via social media or from other people there was just nothing and i was able to start to see things more clearly and it was like this fog just started to lift and I realized all those subliminal messages he's leaving all of these things that he's doing I'm looking and seeing does he love me or hate me today and I realized how much control he had over my emotions whether I had a good day or a bad day pinned on what he left in his good grace for me to see and that's when I had the I started to have that clarity but it I needed that space of no contact from him completely for all of that to to dissipate because you know every time I'd have contact it would enact that fear response and so again you're stuck in that cycle yeah which is why we know now that that's such a dangerous time for women right because mm. abusers realize that that fog is lifting mm. that that control is waning and they panic yes and that becomes a really dangerous time for women yeah, well, the, the thing is that they don't actually tell you this and no. I didn't know, you know, the danger that I was in and, and um, you know, and he's, you know, he's you know, written a letter around the intervention order to, you know, to drop the kids off and pick them up and all that sort of stuff and, um, you know, and all this time, you know, by this stage he's he's been charged and he's out on bail 
and things are escalating and I'm feeling really unsafe but not realising why and eventually going to the police and saying actually he's breaching the intervention order um, and, and I think I was very lucky that he got remanded into custody at that point um, because he was realising that because I'd started to, I'd, you know, somebody had showed me how to pay bills, how to use net banking and I'd started to take control of all of my finances and he was losing that control over me and he was losing that visibility over my life and the children's lives and things were starting to escalate and, um, yeah, I, I think I'm lucky and I'm really grateful that that ended up happening but, geez, I wish somebody had told me. Yeah, I feel like we didn't know. Is that true? I mean, I, I was... I didn't know. know. I feel like as a society we kind of only are just putting this together. Is that true? I, I, I guess you've done a lot more research. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, no, well, look, we, it, we have known over the history and the people that I've, I've met along this way is that, you know, women are murdered in the context of separation and it is something that is documented throughout history. It's just not really something that's overly, I guess, it's it's now more broadly discussed within, you know, conversations and within the community. Um, right. You know, it's got more visibility than it ever had before. I guess it, it didn't have that visibility back then. But then I guess, you know, services are trying to then weigh up, you know, if we tell you, if we tell women, are they scared, will that make them too scared to leave? But yeah. I sort of position it in, well, if you don't tell them, they don't have the tools necessary. You know, information is power. Okay, well, if I need to leave and that's going to put me in danger, then I need to engage services to make sure I'm safe. And you're putting, yeah. you, you're giving them the best possible chance to make the right choices, to reach out to services and and and, and demand that help from them. Um, because, it, as, again, you only know what you know, and I didn't realise, like I wouldn't have put myself in a position of allowing him to pull into the street to drop the children off or be anywhere near him. I would have chosen somewhere much more open and populated by people rather than putting myself in a, you know, very vulnerable, you know, and dangerous position. And you weren't even really aware at that time, were you? I'm jumping ahead, but you weren't even aware of the level of offending that he had committed against you. Well, I guess I I was. It wasn't until I made, had to go in and make that statement that it all started to kind of hit and and, and really sink in. And um, I think I even had to go and make an amendment to my statement because, you know, I'd um oh so it was you know one of the moments you know because it's it's little bits and pieces that you know trigger memories and things and I passed out on the kitchen floor and 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 came to and realized oh god that's what happened and then had to go on you know amend my statement but you can't take the gravity of it on board at the time and you know the severity of it, and 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 the full impact of it, and I think that's that that really comes down to being, you know, something that keeps you, you know, a survival mechanism. In that, if I could have taken it on board while I was living with it, or just after getting out, I think mentally I probably wouldn't have coped. Yeah, I'd be scared to go and amend my statement though. As you're saying that, I think, oh, are they going to think I'm lying or making it up if I come back and go, oh, I forgot a bit. Like, were they cool about that when you came back and said, I... No, no, she was really good. Okay. You know, she was really good. Um, and even even now, sort of looking back retrospectively, like, there's so many things that he didn't get charged with. There's such a huge amount more that he didn't get charged with. And it's really, it's really confronting when you have to sit down and you've got to put a date to everything. A date? A date. So a date, you know, a point in time in the year or and you're talking 10 years of this and you've so the only ones that 
I could I could pinpoint the things like, you know, if it was around the time of somebody's birthday or we'd been to a wedding or, you know, if you, what was going on at that time, like, oh, yeah, we'd gone to so-and-so's birthday and they were turning this age and they're this old now. So that would have been in this month of this year. Um, even going back through, you know, I on Instagram and I'd put up photos on there and I know I put up that photo after that had happened and just got working your way back and and when there's that many that you actually can't put a date to that's that's still something I don't think I can fully even even myself can fully um I guess digest it no I can't imagine if there were four in a week four sexual assaults in a week yeah I I don't know where you start no no you just yeah it's 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 a difficult one and it hits me every now and then I um you know, the gravity of it. Um, and I think, you know, more recently with, with, with the gag laws and everything has, has really sort of brought it all back up for me again. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think I do a fair bit of, you know, sort of burying it back down again and that's not really processing it or working through it. That's just ignoring that it's there half the time. <laughs> yeah, I can understand wanting to do that though. Or sort of, I can understand the temptation, I guess, to think, oh, God, haven't I done enough processing? Can I just kind of bury it for a while again and get on with a nice new life? Yeah, I, some days I just like, you know, I wish I could just forget it. I wish, mm. you know, that I could just forget that all this happened and forget that that was my life and I can move on and, and just have somebody else's life. But that's it's not possible, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, and, and some days I don't even want to hear the words, you know, especially the word rape. I, some days I absolutely just utterly hate that word and I don't want to hear anybody use it I don't want to see it written yeah it's 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 difficult what about when you finally got to court I mean had you reconciled with your family or anything like that did you have a support network mm. together when it when it came no. to court? no 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 we didn't by that stage no I, um you know the relationship with my mum was very was very fragmented at that point like it's it's fine now it's beautiful now <laughs> and and it's and that's, you know, one of the things that I really hate him for it is he, he took away my relationship with my mother. He impacted my ability to mother my children and protect my children as well. And that's, you know, that's, that's a huge loss that I, that I grieve over. But, you know, by the time we got to, and it all happened really quickly. So within six months of him being charged, we, it was his um, sentencing hearing. So he um, tried to do plea, um, do a plea deal and they wouldn't allow him to plea any of the charges down it was all of the charges or, or it was a trial um so he pled guilty to everything I remember they gave me cab charges so I had um witness assistance sort of services through the county court that were offering me support um and so I had you know a court serv- you know somebody from the court there sitting with me yeah I went in there in a taxi on my own and I came in and home on a taxi on my own mm. But his sentencing went over. It went over two, two hearings. So they adjourned it for six weeks while you know the judge went and had to go and look and see um, for other similar cases because apparently um, sentencing uh, was setting a precedence precedence for future cases. Um, so they were going and reviewing anything that was even you know, sort of that was similar to this. Um, so we had that six weeks adjournment in between him playing and, and then him being sentenced. So I had to go back to the courtroom a second time. It's hard for me to believe that given that what are the statistics of, of women with disability who have been sexually assaulted? They're huge, right? They're huge. 70% um, 
uh, you know, of women with disabilities, um, sorry, you know, 70% of women with disabilities will be sexually assaulted. And for women with intellectual disabilities, that's up to like 90%. Right. So it's so hard for me to believe that your case so recently was setting a precedent in, in the court. I just sort of, I, I don't know whether it was because he also had a disability or because we were married. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure, but it's just, it's, it's really quite confronting and that really sort of speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of sexual assault cases don't actually make it to those points and, you know, and, and um, you know, or, uh, you know, is this because, you know, women with disabilities, our, our, our statements and we're not believed and or our, you know, as witnesses we're not seen as credible so therefore that's a reasonable doubt in a jury to be able to find somebody guilty. Like there's all sorts of intersecting things here that could sort of, you know, sort of speak to that, that, is that is alarming and all the things that we need to sort of change and reform with the system, you know, to turn that around. Um, but, you know, you look at sexual assault cases in general, just not many of us get to even make that statement. Yeah, and then, and then once you do make that statement, how many of those make it through to charges or then even make it through, to, you know, to going into a courtroom or, yeah, or right. you know, in my case, he pled guilty. But, you know, if they don't, then you've got to go through that committal hearing process. How many get dropped at the committal? How many make it to trial? It's so many of us don't get to that point. You're right. So what happened? What happened at sentencing uh, after all the deliberation, after all the research? Well, um, yeah, it was hearing hearing the judge read out that I don't remember back then exactly all the words that he said and I'm really, really glad now that I didn't remember them now that I've read them, you know, how many years later, um, five years later. But, um yeah. Nicole didn't even feel comfortable hearing the judge's sentencing remarks again, so I told her I'd read them in later. Among other things, when sentencing him to raping Nicole almost daily for years on end, the judge described David Latham as a quiet, gentle and caring man. He praised him for his resilient nature, excellent work history and for being an involved parent to his own son. By contrast, the judge referred to Nicole, David Latham's victim, as having many issues and difficulties. Um, well, at the time, I remember feeling just incredibly deflated because, you know, not only you know these read out the sentence for every every each and individual charge, but then to hear the words that this will be served concurrently. So, all of the all of the individual sentences for each charge were all to be served all at the same time. So two years, six months for all of those charges just did not feel like enough. Um, you know, there was you know one representative count charge that represented you know, six counts of rape, three standalone counts of rape. So that's nine counts of rape, assault, persistent breach of an intervention order comes down to two years, six months, and I felt cheated. I felt, yeah. And the, the police and the prosecutor just said to me, a result is a result. I mean, I guess for them, you know, they have that, that, that scenario that you were just explaining to us about how few cases get that far. So for them, they're thinking, hey, kid, we made it. We made it all the way. But 
to imagine that having been raped so many times and have it add up to two years and six months for a person, any other person who doesn't work in that system is heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and I just think, you know, if I was a stranger uh, that he had done this to, the sentence would have been far greater. I'm sure the sentence would have been far greater. The language that was used, I remember back at the time, him, you know, the, the magistrate using the words love and, you know, the fact that it was rape in marriage, it's, you know, the, this whole understanding that because you knew the person, it's not as bad. And that's just so wrong. You know, at least with a stranger, I could have just hated them. But this person was somebody I'd invited into my life. I'd had a child with, I'd trusted. The breach of all of those things and the magnitude of that is massive. And and sort of now now that I, I have read the sentencing remarks five years on and, and looking at it and looking at the way he positioned the sympathy for my husband and, and, and the scorn for myself and all of those victim blaming narratives and then to say that he even used that uh your wife even admits that there was consensual sex in the relationship so therefore somehow was I inviting him to then also rape me as well how did that sort of dismiss the severity of what was happening you know and I think that was only used in my statement because you know he'd always use the excuse of oh I never get any and that's why I do this so I and I remember (laughs) making an effort to have sex with him to make him happy to make it stop and then he raped me that night anyway of course and 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 it's like okay well all those excuses you kept saying to me that it was my fault he never got any well I, I remember just being so so much more hurt by not only you doing this but then you're also lying to me about whose fault it is as well and and to hear that in a courtroom was you know and, and to read that that was what the judge had said is that narrative of you know wifely duties hasn't shifted that far in courtrooms it really hasn't um the fact that I was positioned as almost a provocateur or that he cared so much about me every time I'd go to hospital without actually talking to the fact that he was the reason I was going to hospital he was the reason I was so mentally unwell and I'd you know, I was struggling so much that, you know, he was positioned as being the loving man that stood beside me and, and even used the words that, you know, that he's been referred to by his, you know, like his family as, as such a gentle, caring man. Now, I don't know any man that, you know, rapes their wife on the kitchen floor should be classed as gentle and caring. No, and I don't know that we need his family's input so much on his demeanour uh, at a, his rape trial, frankly. No, no, and no, and and the fact that you know his defense and you know obviously in some point in in all of the material and everything was able to say that you know that he had resentment for me um and you know because of you know, having to look after me and resentment and the fact you'd be forgiven if you thought Bettina Arndt wrote all of this yeah. and 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 that you know the the difference in sex drive and how frustrated he was and even down to and and this was something within the relationship that I really regretted you know I was traveling a lot with um sport and wheelchair tennis and um while I was away on tour I ended up in a situation where I froze and I couldn't say no to this person. And so that was then classed as an affair. Were you sexually assaulted by another person? 
I wasn't sexually assaulted, but I didn't say no to him. Okay. So I, I don't think I, I don't think he meant anything malicious by it. And if I had have said no, I'm not interested. I think he yeah, I think he yeah would have stopped. But the fact that Okay. I completely and utterly froze, you know, because of what my husband had been doing to me for so many years. Well, yeah. And then that was posed as, and your wife had had an affair. I didn't get to sort of say that that was not an affair. <laughs> that was, it was, it was something that I came home and told him about and it was horrible and I hated myself for it. And to think that that was then positioned as an affair. I'm no psychologist, but I do know that that is a classic reaction from a sexual assault victim to to be afraid to say no, because in your experience, saying no just brought more violence into the sex that was going to happen anyway, right? So that makes me wonder, did you have, was there a psychologist testifying on your behalf? Was there anyone there to say, hey, woo, this is actually all part of her victimization? No, no. And that's that's the really just the, the the thing of once you become a witness you the people that represent you are the, are the ones that are doing the prosecuting so you've got the police prosecutor and and they're literally just laying the facts on the table um that there there is no objective opinion there is no uh, you know sort of putting a position from what my perspective or the responses to all of the stuff that his defense has put on the table you know there was there was nothing there that could counteract all of that stuff that his defence had put together. And and that's the thing, like as a victim you become so de-identified in all of this. You become this person's string of charges and things that they chose to do to you and who you are and who you were and, and the impact that has, has has no visibility in that room. And that's that was something I didn't expect to happen that's and that's not something that people tell you is what happens when when you do go you know into a courtroom and and into these situations and how stripping that is of you and your identity and and your ability to have any humanity is is at a level that it's it's hard to explain it to people whilst I I don't regret going through that process I wish I had have had some forewarning of what to expect yeah, absolutely, because it doesn't feel like there's anyone there to kind of care for you and, and to help you with things that perhaps you didn't understand yet, and that's a classic example. Yeah, so so the only thing that gave me any visibility in that courtroom was, you know, my victim impact statement, which I know the, the statement I'd write now would be very, very different to what I wrote back then. I bet. But, you know, I'm talking maybe this is, what, three months after he's, you know, been put into prison. Um, this is all still very rapid. You're still starting to come to terms and to grips with everything, let alone being able to see what the impact is. Like the impact is slow. It slowly starts to come out of the woodwork after you get into that space of being free again. So like you know, my victim impact statement while I look back at it and I think, oh, no, it wasn't too bad. It was, it was, it was pretty strong. But that's the only visibility I had. That and, and a very short letter from the psychologist that I'd gotten to know um, in hospital as well. Look, the other thing I'm very, very aware of is that you have the legacy of managing the emotional baggage that comes out of this for your son. You share a son. Yes, yes, and 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 I had my own son as well. So you know, this was his stepfather, the only you know sort of father that he really had anything to do with. So you know, I'm not just. And this is the thing: you're not just 
you know, carrying yourself and rebuilding yourself, you're also carrying your children as well and, and trying to hold them and piece them back together whilst you're piecing yourself back together. And I was an incredibly, incredibly broken person and my children were so broken and damaged as well. And Oh, yeah, for young men, this is an ongoing thing. Yeah, and we and we were a little bit of a you know little mess back then. We and things have shifted, and and it took its time, but it wasn't wasn't pretty. And we got through it together, and we did get to the other side of it. But you know, there's there was lots of really dark moments. We were all very sad. They're they're grieving for the loss of their dad, even though they were scared of him, because this was the only dad that they knew. This was the only life that they knew, and all of a sudden that got turned upside down. So carrying them there through what they were experiencing and their trauma and and especially my youngest and his nightmares and and their triggers it was whilst living and dealing and carrying your own is really hard it's it's um it's a difficult it's a difficult path to walk on but it does it does get better the longer you, the longer you're on it and the longer you walk on it the it does actually start to get better and and, you know, the thing is with that courtroom, it does end. The court, all that stuff that happens in that courtroom, everything that happens within the court system, it does have an end date. It doesn't continue to happen indefinitely. <sighs> <sighs> I know, that's a big sigh. Now, we have been talking for an hour. How are you feeling? Do you want to break and we haven't even talked yet about the diaries. Yeah, and I'd like to bring Nina in on, especially around the diaries and stuff, because she will probably be able to articulate it better than me because I I still find them very confronting. I still really find them very confronting. I haven't spoken about them publicly. Same as the sentencing remarks, I probably I haven't spoken about them and I'm sure Nina has got a few things to say on those as well. Thank you to our patrons for helping us bring stories like Nicole's to you again through 2020. You can become a patron, of course, at patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. Thank you to James O'Connor, Ellie Wilkinson, Susan Bellamy, Carol Dean, Deb Curtis and James Bateson. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Nina Fennell joins us to discuss the extraordinary diary entries Nicole's husband left to be discovered explaining his rationalisation for continually raping her. But first, Nicole explains why she wants to challenge herself for the first time to talk to you about those diary entries. And I think, yeah, just challenging that, you know, that violence is uncomfortable, it's not pretty, and, you know, that our conversations should actually maybe reflect a little bit more of that uncomfortable space. And I think that's a good thing with a podcast is that if, you know, if it's too much, people can tune out. Well, it's interesting that you say that because oftentimes we have this conversation too about what details to leave in and to edit out. And, you know, I've said that sometimes too, as long as it's okay with the the family or or the person that we're talking to, is that I think I'm not going to shy away from it. I mean, yeah, it's violence is terrible. And if this is someone's story and they want it told, then I don't think we should be too precious to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and so I sort of wanted Nina here to help me sort of speak to you know all of those diary entries. I still find them confronting and and difficult, but then also to help push me into that you know stepping outside of the comfort zone, which most interviews tend to uh, I guess sit in. But I th- also believe that if we don't go to some of those uncomfortable conversations and have some of those you know sit in some of those uncomfortable positions, then you know, I, I guess we don't end up in a place where, you know, people are able to really identify what the problem is, you know, if we're not actually telling them the true picture sometimes. So I, I sort of phrase it in, you know, like sitting in that sitting in that uncomfortable place and then looking at why does this make me uncomfortable and then how can I use that feeling of uncomfortable to motivate me to do something different in the policy I'm writing, the way I talk about it in my community or the conversations I'm having with my friends. Last time we spoke, we didn't even mention these diary <laughs> entries at all. No, because there was a lot of background. <laughs> there was, and we'd spoken for a while and we decided, oh, you know, you need a break, you need a rest, and, and we'll come back to it. And also what you've just been talking about then brings us back to why the stories that you've been writing, Nina, are so important and why it's important for one of the many, many reasons why it's important for people to be able to tell their stories if they want to, is that policymakers need to be able to hear these stories, isn't it? This is one of the very important reasons why. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that survivors are best placed to educate the public on on the lived experience of, of these crimes and Hearing from people like Nicole who, you know, obviously a lot of sexual assault survivors may wish to remain anonymous, which should always be their right, but when someone like Nicole wants to use her story as a platform to educate others and to share that that depth of experience as well, including some of the contradictory or um, 
or elements or the elements which don't necessarily fit with neat victim stereotypes or or narratives which the public may already um, find easily digestible. I think that's that's important because it, it nuances the discussion and it means that we're, you know, as Nicole says, we're, we're, we're required to do the work ourselves as audience and the public and reflect on our own prejudices and biases and assumptions about violence against women. And, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting learning from Nicole is about the ways in which she feels her own experiences really shatter that that idea of the neat, perfect victim who who sort of is always passive, always demure, never speaks back to violence. And I think she's, she's got a lot to say on that. And also, Nicole, earlier you spoke in our last conversation, you spoke about the fact that in the court scenario, you felt as though suddenly there was this sort of idea that your partner, the perpetrator of the crime, was being treated as though he was like this great guy who who was under so much pressure and that perhaps his crimes were were reflected in that way that he had perpetrated because of the pressure that he was under as a carer. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's that, you know, that's the thing like if we don't sort of go to those conversations or we don't start to look at, you know, the intersectional um ways in which um, you know, your different backgrounds and diversities get used against us. We've got to be looking at those courtroom narratives of how we're positioning victims and how we're positioning perpetrators. And whilst we might have abolished, um, you know, the defence of provocation, you know, especially down here in Victoria, it's certainly alive and well in, um, you know, sentencing remarks via, you know, magistrates and judges and, and in these positions of power and the ways that we within our society and community look to seek to excuse men's violence and how... Yeah, pervasive that is across all areas it's a, and it's not just in the locker room talk in a footy club this is happening in our courtrooms you know we're not viewing you know judges and magistrates as being some of the most deeply patriarchal and misogynistic men in this country yet they are the ones who are sitting and and passing judgment on violent men towards you know you know their victims and and I was painted as that um you know that burden the crazy woman and, and sort of sitting and thinking and looking back to that and how that feels even now to be positioned as, you know, the crazy woman in relation to her guilty husband um, and how that made him resentful towards me. Now, ultimately, when you think of the law, you know, being black and white, it shouldn't matter what I what I did or shouldn't matter what anybody does. You know, a crime is a crime no matter what the provocation is. Um, and that's the thing, like we, we're not discussing those things you know, very deeply, you know, and if you're not that passive victim, you, and, and the thing is, I don't think I've ever met any victim that meets and fits that criteria for the perfect passive victim, but to be able to get the sympathy from the system or to be not viewed in a negative way in a courtroom, you have to actually play that role and how deeply damaging that is for us as individuals, how deeply damaging and how dangerous that narrative is that we put out there to the community. So for a long time myself, I didn't see myself as a victim of violence because, you know, I did speak back, I did fight back, I did push back, I defended myself. So therefore, I felt like I had some part to play. I wasn't the woman cowering in the corner. I did try and defend myself sometimes, you know, in very minor ways, but because I didn't fit that stereotype, that 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 image of the passive woman that cowered, 
I found it hard in a lot of ways to identify myself as being a victim of violence. Some of what you want to confront that you find hard to confront, and I think you're being really hard on yourself because I think that the first conversation we had was extraordinary and I don't think that you were, you know, going easy on yourself at all. <laughs> <laughs> but but some of the stuff that you do want to confront in this conversation is the diary entries yes. that were uncovered of your husband's. and. I think in most cases it's down to a sort of he said, she said scenario where a victim can be in a situation where they're trying to explain what he's like, what he thinks, what he says, the way he seems to be thinking when he behaves in a certain way. Rarely are we in a situation where we have a perpetrator's own thoughts Mm. written by him. Where did these come from, these diary entries? Where, Where were they found? Who found them? Um, so they were on a on a mobile phone that used to belong to me that he'd been using before he went into jail. He'd smashed his own mobile phone by, you know, throwing that out the window of the car, in you know, in in one of the many arguments. So then he was using my my old my old little old iPhone four, and that was you know sent back to me, and it hadn't been wiped. Uh, he hadn't even signed out of iTunes, so it was completely useless for me to use to re you know, set up for my son to use. And then, you know, sort of looking in into this and going into the notes section, the, there's photos on there, all these apps are on there, emails are on there, but these notes were still in the notes section of this phone. And I 100% believe that he left them on there for me to find, so that I would read them and and know oh, his no, thoughts. Really? Yes. Yeah. I'm, and and I've I haven't shared them with anybody for all of these years that I've had them. I've had them for a number of years now, and it's it was confronting to read. And it was, you know, it sort of took me right back to that place that I was before he went into prison, um, and that really the thoughts, you know, that he had towards me, you know, all of those apologies, all of those I'm sorry's, but then this is also your fault, you know, your mental health, you were always really difficult, I was always, um, you know, making the cups of teas and giving the cuddles without cuddling, um, without being cuddled in return, um, you know, and I remember, you know, I had those conversations with him that, you know, I just want to sit on the couch and have a cup of tea with you and just connect again, um, whereas, you know, in his mind everything, you know, resorted and resounded right back to sex and he couldn't understand why I had no desire or drive to be intimate with him in a consensual way because you know non-consensual sex had been happening for so many years and so constant for such a long time that he just couldn't understand that I have no desire to do those things because of what you're doing to me and I need you to stop that. And and I remember having these conversations with you, I need you to stop, this makes me hate you, and, and saying what it was and I'd get the remorse, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, and eventually that shifted into I remember having to say, don't bother apologising, don't cry, don't talk to me about it, prove it by not doing it anymore. And that was about the only, you know, agency I had in those moments after something had happened was to say, don't even bother apologising, don't cry at me, just stop doing it, get help, change what you're doing and prove it to me with your actions. Yeah, those diary entries just really undermined all of that. Um, 
I don't think even could change. No, even though they purport to demonstrate, you know, um, that he's sorry and that he feels like an asshole, as he says in them, and um, you know, uh, but they still definitely. Uh, are gaslighting, aren't they? They're still all about it being your fault, and yeah, they were full of manipulation. So they get twisted, yeah, yeah twisted right back around to, but you had a part to play in this too. Um, mm. So, which you know, I'm sorry, but it's kind of like I'm not a racist, but you know, I'm sorry, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> you know, completely undermines the I'm sorry, and you know that there was honestly nothing genuine in there, and the continuous you know, way that he blamed my mental health without even understanding that he was the main cause of the deterioration. Um, you know, seeing that would written you, down was hard. How would you, how would you feel about um, my, because as you're talking, I can see sentences that reflect what you're saying, but I don't want to read them in case, yeah. would that be triggering? Would you rather I no, read no. it in later? No, you can, you okay. can read it. Yep. So, for example, I just as you said that, I read um, she had existing baggage before we met. I was a positive experience for her. Early on, I empathised with her as she had depressive episodes where I was not the trigger. The trigger was something else that's been uh, blocked yep. out at that stage and I would have to calm her down. Many times I spent hours crying as she described situations she had been through. So, yeah, he's definitely saying, you know. Yeah. She was. She, she's always been crazy. Yeah, and irrespective of whether or not I was or I wasn't, you know, I, I did mm. have mental health before I met him. You know, a lot of us do suffer with different forms of, you know, mental health at mm-hmm. um, varying degrees. But you know, it was nowhere near as bad um, as what it got during that relationship. And even on the other side of it, you know, I'm not the same person as I was going into that. And there's damage that is well, again. That's part of. That's part. That's part of a. Um, I know I've done a terrible thing to my wife, but why mm. does she not see that she has a part to play in how things turned out? Mm. So that's part of that sorry but yeah. equation. And I spent so much time in that relationship, you know, seeking help for myself, trying to fix myself, trying to get better, in and out of treatment, but then, um, you know, seeing the pattern of as I became more independent and as I got better, so this is with my eating disorder, with the anorexia, as I got better, um, that his violence would start to escalate. And I remember the last program I entered, I had to, have to, I had to actually be honest with them and say, I need to stop and I need to leave because this is what's going on at home. And the only mm. way for things to de-escalate again is for me to disengage. So, of well, course, so because in- the threat, <laughs> yes. the threat of your getting well and getting mm. independent, yeah. and you know, is the threat of you leaving him. Yeah, and and I did I did the things to be independent, and I did you know if I wasn't in trouble for you know you're too reliant, you need me too much, mm. you're too needy, you need me more than I need you, you know, toxic things that he would say. To then I'd start to become more independent. I'd be you know start to do things for myself again, and then it was well, you don't need me you know, why do we even stay together, you know, and then his violence would start to escalate. So it was sort of, well, there there was no right way for me to be and I was constantly trying to just fit in and around those eggshells and constantly trying to appease whatever it is, but it just kept changing and it kept shifting, that there was no appeasing. 
and no. constantly dancing that um, and then not wondering and then him not being able to see how that was then impacting my mental health um, and just that blame constantly on the person um, where all of this was outside of my control. Um, and you're being raped constantly. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's so hard to, to fathom now, isn't it? Mm. From the outside that, 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 that you could consider that anything else could be part of the problem when that's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of those entries where it just said, you know, please believe that I would never do anything to hurt you or other children. And, Mm. and, and the worst one, the worst, you know, experience for me was, you know, not eating, um, you know, I'd gotten so unwell and I was weak and I passed out and on the kitchen floor and he, and that happened twice and he violated me on the kitchen floor and the, and, and it was phrased as use this as motivation to eat. Mm-hmm. If you didn't pass out, I wouldn't do that to you. How is that making, you know, passionate love to the one that you love, which he said in those diary entries, how is that I please believe that I never meant to hurt you because that was, and, and I remember seeing my psychiatrist and just crying to him about it and him saying, I'm so sorry, I know I wanted you to, you know, I wanted to motivate you to, you know, to eat, but this isn't the motivation that anybody needs. This is not the motivation I wanted to find for you. The diaries also mention still knocks and mm. um, there's one that says, uh, was it a dream? Or is she just unable to respond? What is happening due to the still knocks? So were were you aware that you were also, that he was also drugging you and raping you while you were unconscious at the time or did you find that out later? No. Well, the still knocks was something that I was um, choosing to take myself every now and then. I did not sleep. So the thing is, the, what was going on in that home, this was every single night if it wasn't, uh, and it would slowly get worse and it would escalate and escalate and escalate until it did become, um, you know, sort of you know, penetration rape. But if it wasn't hands or fingers or being, you know, constantly rubbed on and it just it was every single night I did not sleep. I had just constant insomnia because what's going to happen tonight? What's he going to do? I'm getting woken up because I'm being – it was just constantly disgusting and degrading and vile so eventually I would try and take it without him knowing that I'd taken it um you know so he wouldn't see that I'd actually taken any medication to try and get a good night's sleep you know most nights he would you know sort of test the waters to see if I'd wake up and then I'd usually slap him (laughs) and hit him push him away and tell him to fuck off um but the yeah and then the nights when obviously he'd worked out that I wasn't able to respond was when he would do that and I could I knew in the morning what had happened because you know there's certain things that bodies don't do when they're not receptive to sexual advances and that's painful that's really it's very painful and I'd wake up and I'd say to him how dare you you've you've fucking done it again yeah he convinced himself that he was sort of doing you a favor didn't he Mm. because he thought oh well he says I feel it is okay and as she is not awake, mm. but that's what he was saying. Was it a dream? He was he was thinking, well, she won't even know, so it's, yeah. it's probably better this way. But the thing is I told him repeatedly, 
that I knew and that it wasn't okay and that it hurt me. And yet he still wrote something like that in his diary, which um, you know just didn't make any sense because I was constantly telling him I knew what had happened. I, you know, you can't you can't not wake up and know that someone's violated you. Um, and and just the <laughs> feeling of, of, of betrayal and, and disgust and 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 eventually, you know, you know, waking up that morning and saying, you know, how dare you? Um, and then I he'd cry and he'd yeah, say all I those things. Yeah, I can't imagine the feeling of the feeling of being used um, in that yeah. way. But it's that you know all of those apologies, and like I said, you know, uh, it eventually was just like, don't bother saying sorry, don't don't waste your breath, don't. Um, uh, disregard me like that because I'm not listening to it. And that was, yeah, as I said, the only agency I had in those moments was to push back and just say, don't even bother saying sorry. Mm. Who was the first person you you told about the diary entries or that you showed? Um, well, Nina. Well, my partner, Mark, he had sort of, um, my new partner had um, looked at them with me a little while, you know, a while ago. But ultimately, Nina is the first person that I've opened up and shared that with because I didn't fully sort of was able to take in, you know, what do I do with these? What do these mean? I find them confronting. Um, and and during, you know, the Let Us Speak campaign, you know, I've had lots of conversations with her. The trust was built and after months and months of conversations, I was able to sort of talk to her about some of the bits and pieces that I had here. Um, and to sort of gauge her thoughts on those. But it took that level of trust to be able to open up and say, this is the stuff I've got, what do you think? Gosh, that's, that's um, it, it's a lot to have kept to yourself from, from the place of, of being in that court situation where you were so minimised to have had these diary entries for years how many years five four or five years mm-hmm. uh, no probably like about um two three years yeah three years now okay I think. Yep, three years <sighs> so how have you felt since they have been in in print and people have read them um and I, i'm assuming people have spoken to you about them yeah um Seeing everybody else's sort of level of shock, and I think this is something that, you know, other victim survivors do because it's our story and we know it, we, uh, I downplay a lot of, um, I guess, you know, you know, the severity of it all. I downplay what it all means. I downplay how shocking it is in my own mind. And for me to see and hear that um reflected from other people just how shocking and how confronting they are makes all of that real again and reminds me that yes you know this this wasn't something that was just you know dismissive as as the magistrate you know the judge had said in hit those sentencing remarks as well that you know this was disgusting and horrific and abhorrent and um you know that i guess it brings the reality of it all to me and and for me I guess that's a really good thing because I do downplay it a lot I do disconnect from it all and the only way to really unpack those years is to confront it um, and sometimes you need other people to help you do that yeah 
And if I if I can jump in here, Michelle, and comment as well on um, tr- try to explain the kind of courage that it takes for Nicole to share that. Um, you know, she said it was months and months of us talking, but I think it's also important to highlight that you know one of the things that I really learned from those conversations with Nicole is the nature of the abuse is obviously that you you minimize what's happened to you and you internalize some some degree of um of of self-blame or shame or self-loathing around that but in Nick's case what had also happened was that at court the sentencing judge had bought into and then reproduced those same tropes around blaming the woman, minimising what had happened, but also extolling his virtues as a great dad, a great husband. You know, it, was, it was really shocking to read the, the diary entries, the list of crimes themselves, and then the sentencing remarks where the judge had really kind of framed him as a good bloke. And, and, and so when, when Nick and I were talking about, you know, releasing these diaries, it was a huge... Um, you know, obviously it's a vote of trust um, as a journalist, but it's, it's an even bigger vote of trust in the public and, and, and trusting that they're going to hold your story and carry it with respect and be able to see through that and cut through that missing, you know, that those myths and those stereotypes around the good bloke and so on. And, um, and I remember, you know, just before we went to print, Nick was so, you know, I hope it's okay for me to share this, Nick, but Nick was so anxious because you never know how this stuff is going to land, right? Like you never know. Are people going to read the diaries and see him saying, um, you know, that, that she, you know, she's a crazy woman and this and this. And I, and I felt, um, you know, objectively speaking, no, like I don't, I, I think that, that they are so shocking and that people will be able to actually see that what he's doing is manipulating the facts and the reality um, as a form of ongoing gaslighting and how he's up. Uh, He's actually sort of, uh, you know, how he's within his own mind. He's he's um, twisting things so that he can excuse himself of any culpability and responsibility around his own actions. But you always worry, like you worry that you're putting this stuff out there, and and how are people, how's it going to land? How are people going to respond? And I, I just wanted to um, yeah, to, to to make that point because I, I don't think it's as simple as people might assume. Yeah. Um, when when a survivor goes yeah forward absolutely and, and I, like I was that. thinking like because you were talking about huge, um, huge you know minimizing the crimes that the, you, you felt as though you had minimized the crimes and I was just thinking I just don't want you to minimize your your achievements like to me it's a story about you and you know what you lived through in that relationship between 2005 and 2014 and then getting to court, which in and of itself is just so incredibly difficult. So overcoming everything from anorexia to, you know, everything, all of this as a mum of, uh, you know, small children through this process as well and then to discover these diary entries and then to have the courage to publish them like and by the way going to uni and being an advocate and an activist like to me that would be the tragedy if you were undermining that yeah <laughs> um you know yeah yeah absolutely it's it's hard to um 
yeah, take that on board. <laughs> that's just that's just me. Um, yeah. yeah, it is hard to see those sorts of traits in yourself. But um, I think just sort of explaining to people, you know, just how damaging the criminal justice system can be for victims. Yeah. And that, you know, releasing that gave me more validation than that sentencing, than, than that sentence that he received. That really validated that what he did was a crime, that what he did was was wrong and, and horrific, whereas, you know, the two years, six months um, and those sentencing remarks, you know, it was dismissive. And, you know, we look at criminal justice um, proceedings as being a way to validate victims and to provide them with, um, you know, sort of that recognition of what they've been through. And it did absolutely the opposite. Whilst I got that conviction, it it, it was not validating. But the fear that releasing that for me, and I think I texted Nina that morning, I said, what if nobody cares? Mm, yeah, well, a lot of people cared. Um, and, and also we must make the point that did you have to go to court to be able to tell your story? Yes. So, you know, under the Let Us Speak campaign, which Nina can probably speak more to this, and, and, and all of that money that was raised under the GoFundMe, you know, was used to support, I think, 12 of us in total to get court orders to be able to speak. So, um, you know, mine was one of the uh, sort of earlier ones to be put through, but it was such a confronting process thinking that I have to go back into a court because of somebody else's actions. I have to go back into that. Somebody else has to pay for this. And he didn't have to pay for it. it. Didn't cost him any money, you know. And it was his actions that I need to now go into that courtroom for. Why was that, Nina? What What was What was the legislation that was preventing Nick from telling her story at that time? Yeah, sure. So in February, the Victorian government made amendments to the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act, and the effect of those amendments were that sexual assault survivors whose offenders had been found guilty, so Nicole is one of those individuals, were then prohibited from speaking out under their own names unless they sought and obtained a court order. So Nick was actually one of the first two women um, who we started the campaign with in Victoria. Um, and then, yeah, she's right, we, we went and we applied for um, 12 in total. We've got 11 of the 12 so far. But the process of obtaining those court orders has been incredibly taxing and gruelling on the individual survivors. And, you know, there's a couple of things that have happened. In a number of those cases, the offenders have been contacted by the courts and asked whether or not they think the victim survivor should be entitled to use their own name and their own story as a survivor. And in Nick's case, the, the sentencing judge who had originally made those good bloke-styled remarks was um, consulted by the judge making the decision on whether or not she should she should be allowed to get a court order. And, I, and that process in and of itself for Nick, I know, having supported throughout, was was extraordinarily confronting to, to think that not only do you not get to make the decision but these two blokes sitting around somewhere talking about whether or not you as a woman, as a survivor, should be entitled to tell your own your own name and your own story. And while we did eventually get the court order and we're, you know, on behalf of everybody in the campaign and I think everybody who's donated, we're really, really thrilled and supportive that you've got that. You should never have had to get it. That's the point. Yeah, the right, the rights should never have been taken away. And I think, you know, the, the campaign was was incredibly difficult because it was hard for people to really understand exactly what had happened and, and why and how. And, and and then there was reporting early on that, you know, that they're going to jump and fix it and change it straight away. And, and it felt a lot like, you know, everybody turning their backs. And I waited and we did wait a while to put out my story. There was a few moments there when I thought, 
okay, I've got my order now, but you know what? I never want to speak again. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. I don't. All of you, all of these people that have turned their back on 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 the campaign, on myself as an advocate, on all of us, all of the things that went on during these months, just sort of, I felt a little jaded there for a little while, but it's okay. It's all back again. It's it was a, it's it's been very hard and much harder than. Than what it needed to be and much harder than I think any of us even like you know the Nina even expected it to be like I didn't even think this would ever have gone public let alone having to be such an open fight to get the right thing done and the action taken that was needed. And on that you know Michelle we're so grateful for you and, and your listeners as well because we have had a lot of support from from you and from your community that that hasn't necessarily been consistent across the mainstream media it's been kind of interesting to watch how that's unfolded um and it's taken a little while for people to actually accept that yes this this was a law change made in february it really did have this effect and yes we really are fighting and having these court orders but um but you know what's happening in parliament this week is is the government has you know obviously conceded that that they did do this back in February, it is a real problem and it needs to be fixed. So, you know, and, and that wouldn't have, that, that fix would not have happened or would not be happening um, were it not for Nick and the other 11 survivors um, in this campaign. But there are also some more broadly, you know, we know the sisters in the Lafer case, for example, also obtained court orders. And I think that collective strength of survivors to push for and demand for change, you know, with or without having the support of the mainstream media at all points in time, to be honest. Um, but it's there, it has been them championing it that, that's triggered that development in the law. And, you know, that's, that's their legacy. I am looking at this list on on the story from news.com.au. This is your story, Nick, but down the bottom there, there's a list, Nina, of people that you've worked with and you've helped them tell their stories and you help them get their court orders. Ashley Ray Cooper, Phil Nagel, Tracy Morris, Paul Levy. It, it's just, it's, it's literally, I've got shivers just thinking about the idea that victims had to go back to court and had to fight so hard to be able to tell their stories, you know, that this responsibility fell onto the shoulders of victims is just unbelievable. But thank you. Thank you, Nicole. And thank you so much, Nina. Your work has been extraordinary on this matter. It's amazing. Both of Thanks. you. How are you feeling, Nick? Are you okay? Oh, it's been a tough week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it has been a tough week after um, you know, putting out that article and, and having you know, my ex-husband contacting my oldest son to abuse him was pretty shocking. Oh, and no. seeing seeing that that language that was used, um, you know, and knowing you know he had treatment whilst in prison. He did programs and he's had behaviour change programs and he's done that, you know, intense corrections after you know exiting prison. So probably about four years worth of of, of programs to see, you know, the exact same person that I saw before he was you know remanded into custody and realizing that. I think there's just some men that can never change, realising that this person still thinks that they're a victim and even using the language around, um, you know, that he pled guilty just for me and what a great bloke he is for that. And I tell you what, and, and this, this is the interesting thing, you know, when it came down to you know, all the evidence that they had against him, which is rare in, 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 in you know, in a sexual assault case, is that, you know, when there was plea dealing going on, it was all of the charges or we take you to a trial because we'll convict at a trial. Um, so if he had if he had a pled not guilty, I really wouldn't have cared because he'd still be in that prison. I would have, you know, 
gone to that trial, I would have held my own. It would have been really difficult, but you know what? I would have done it. And he would have got a much longer sentence in the end of the day. So to sit there and at this day and say, but I did that for her. No, you didn't. You did that for a lighter sentence. And, you know, that's why, you know, people plead guilty in these cases and do plea deals because it gets mm. them a much lighter sentence. And it was said in those sentencing remarks, if he had a plead not guilty, he would have got seven and a half years. But because of that discount, you know, he only got two and a half years and that's a huge, huge incentive. Um, but who, who, are we, who are we ultimately saving here and, and, and how is that, again, not, you know, feeling like justice for victims because it didn't feel like justice, that sentence. No. It's incredibly frustrating for detectives too mm. because they say, you know, where's our incentive? Here we put together the best brief we can and the better it yeah. is, uh, the more likely they are to plead guilty and then they get yeah. a reduced sentence, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I remember and and I understand, you know, their point and when they came in to me straight afterwards, I was in a, you know, a separate um, um, room, um, you know, watching it all via video link and they came in and they just said a result is a result and they're right. You know, and, and I had to I had to just take that and just like, yeah, okay, a result is a result. You know, because I guess sometimes, you know, they don't. You know, quite often, more often than not, they don't get a result. But, you know, having to sit there um, and, 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 and take that on board and then have to leave that room and spend, you know, the next few years rebuilding my life, regaining my ability to make decisions, regaining my ability to pay my own bills, to pull myself and my children out of poverty um, with some sort of dignity, which was very, very hard. There's a lot of horrible people out there. Um, you know, these are the things we lack for victim survivors. These are the things we lack on the outside and the other side of that process is, you know, the systems and supports needed for somebody to rebuild their life, um, to rebuild their children, to deal with their trauma, to help carry them and to, you know, bring them back out of that poverty that they've been left with. Um, that's where we're failing victims. You know, that's where we're failing on the other side of this. Mm. Yep. Again, see, that's what you've got to remember. That's amazing. You have done more in your lifetime, Nicole, than many, <laughs> most of us will ever could ever think to achieve. And you're still such a young woman. You have much more to do. It's extraordinary. That's the story to me. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Nina, that the, the nerves prior to dropping the story, because it just, of course, I knew it took a lot of courage, but it never occurred to me that the two of you would be worried about how it would be read. To me, I just read it immediately as the way we're talking about it now but you're right now I understand that there would be nerves attached to it but no you mustn't ever think that there's any other way to read it Nicole it's a story of of you and (laughs) and what a woman you are well there's that fear of retribution yeah there's a fear of retribution from him as well I think that that yeah, that, that the, you know, seeing those messages this week really, really shocked me. Um, you know, and I've spent the last week with my house completely locked up like a prison again. You know, I've got my roller shutters down, I've got my front door locked and um, I'm conscious around what's what noises, is the dog barking, who's driven past the house, all of those things. I'm, I'm, I'm hyper aware again because, you know, there was rage in those messages and that did bring back Am I safe? And 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 I have been, and and I have been safe. So I'll give him that benefit of the doubt. He hasn't come around to my house, but um, yeah. But it's it's a risk every time somebody names someone. 
you know, what are they going to do? How angry are they going to be? Um, and how difficult are they going to make your life after that? And it's, and I don't want to live with that fear forever. So I've done it. I've named him. The fear is done. If he's going to do anything, I'll know now. I don't have to sit there contemplating it, thinking about it. Every time I speak publicly, is that going to be the time that pisses him off? It's done. He doesn't have that hold over me anymore. If there's anything in this podcast that has affected you, please phone 1800RESPECT, the National Sexual Assault, Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service, or go to the website 1800RESPECT.com.au. There's also Lifeline on 131114. Thank you to Nicole Lee and Nina Fennell for joining us for this episode of Australian True Crime. You can contribute to the fighting fund to help survivors like Nicole pay their legal fees in these ridiculous situations so they can tell their own stories by donating to the Let Us Speak GoFundMe campaign. There's a link in the show notes to today's episode and also on our Facebook page. Thank you to patrons Erin Here, Jodie Corrigan, Lisa Samuels, Carmel Dugan, Samantha Nixon and Josephine Walsh. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back in 2022, but every week until then, we'll be introducing you to something fresh from another true crime creator. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.